We are uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians. The first two lessons, and I appreciate you sticking with the first two lessons because they're, they were preparatory. You kind of have to know what was the city of Corinth like. We, we like to set these letters in their cultural and historical setting, even though the truth of God does not remain in any given cultural or historical setting, we need to pay attention to the setting into which it's done if we wanna understand what it's actually saying. So the Corinthians, we talked about how their worldview, the way they grew up, what they thought was radically different than what Jesus Christ came to teach about the nature and the truth of reality. The same is true for you and me. Our culture, our belief system in our world is radically different than what the New Testament, that what God's revelation brings to us. And so we have some of the same struggles. Well, let's set this lesson in when and where are we? So first of all, the city of Corinth is here in ancient Greece, very prosperous. We know from the book of Acts that Paul was here with some of his other evangelists and they spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth about the year 51 AD. That's a pretty good date because in the book of Acts, we know that Gallio was the Roman proconsul and some of the Jewish uh, people in Corinth who did not believe that Jesus is the Christ and were trying to get Paul in prison, brought him before Gallio, the Roman judge, the Roman governor, if you will. Well, from external sources outside the Bible, it's pretty easy to date Gallio's time in office to about 50, 51 AD. So this is a very useful way to know when was Paul in Corinth. This letter is being written from Ephesus in about the year 53 AD. And so Paul has heard of some struggles and challenges, and it appears that the Christians in Corinth had sent a messenger with some questions, like, now that we're in the family of God, how do we do this, and how do we do that, and how do we feel about this? And so they're asking him questions, and he's also giving them guidance on living the Christian life. So they've been Christians maybe two years or so, and they're having some struggles. I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for far longer than two years, and I'm still having struggles. So this book is gonna be, I think, very relevant to us. So how does it open? It opens in chapter one with Paul saying to the Corinthian Christians, this is written to Christians, you need, we need to keep that in our mind. And he basically says, I appeal to you, brothers, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. You may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of you, brothers and sisters, in other words, brethren, my family, it's a, it's a Greek word that's, that's not, it's translated brothers because that's what it literally means, but it, it's talking about all the Christians. It's not, it's not intended to be gender specific. So some from Chloe's household, Chloe was uh, apparently someone who has a church in her house, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos, who was a very charismatic preacher of the word, friend of Paul's. Another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, uh, the, the apostle and disciple Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? 
And so he begins with the first problem, is I have heard that there are quarrels and divisions among you as you follow different Christian preachers, different Christian teachers. I want to make a couple of things I want to point out here. This word for divisions is an interesting word. It's an old Greek word. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with just the scriptures. It is our word schism. I mean, it literally is the Greek word schism. And so for us, it has come to mean the idea of a moral or an interpersonal conflict. But the word originally uh, had to do with uh, the idea of plowing. So a schism was a splinter, when wood would splinter, or plowing. You get the idea of it literally was a word that meant a division. If you're dividing something, you're cutting something, or you're splitting it apart. And then it came to mean an interpersonal rift, a quarrel, a division, that sort of thing. There's just a lot of earthy uh, images in, in a lot of these words that we use. And so they start with very vivid images and they come to mean, and you get that idea that people were being divided. They literally were moving to one side or the other over these different preachers. Well, what were the things that were dividing them? This letter, and I'm just going to map out, this is literally what we're going to talk about. And every lesson from now on, after we prepared ourselves, is going to be fairly controversial. So the first issue they have is over preachers and leaders and the idea of unity. And I want to talk about whether or not you should have denominations. I mean, are we unified? Are we doing what Paul is uh, teaching the church that we should do? The next lesson will be about sexual immorality. And the key question there is, when should you kick somebody out of church? Then you get lawsuits against believers. Should, should Christians go sue each other? In court, that was a big issue in those days, and I'll tell you why it was a big issue. But it also applies to us: marriage and divorce. You have believers married to non-believers. You have believers saying, "I can't live with this guy anymore." And like, so what is Christian teaching on marriage and divorce? How are we supposed to live? Sacrifices to idols. Every one of these people used to go to temples, and they'd go to the big cook out there and they would make sacrifices to the idols and some of them were still doing it and some of them weren't and some thought they were better than others and the question became is that something we can still do conduct of women in the church this letter there are a lot of questions because in the secular uh, time there was huge division between men and women very strict role uh, differentiation between men and women in the Roman and the Greek world. And so they're saying, how does that play out now that we're in the church? Uh, the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion, they were not doing that right at all. And so Paul wants to talk about what does that actually mean? Spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, healing, all kinds of spiritual gifts. And that was causing some difficulties. And then finally, the resurrection. Will we have a bodily resurrection? Has it already happened? Is, it, uh, is this a philosophy or is this something more than that? They were divided over a lot of doctrinal issues and a lot of behavioral issues. That's still true today. We have divisions amongst Christians. Now I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking about the outside world in Corinth or the outside world here, but Christians get divided over doctrinal issues, issues of teaching, and also issues of behavior. What's the proper behavior? And you're going to see both of those on that list. 
And so he begins by stating the first issue that he's gonna address, but he takes a detour. This is what we talked about in our last lesson. He said, here's basically what Paul is saying. He says this, he says, you're not going to understand the answer to any of these problems until you think differently than you do now. What the gospel is, is a story, it's a reality, it's the truth of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ for us, but the gospel is a completely new way of thinking that leads to a completely new way of acting. The gospel is a new way of thinking that leads to a new way of acting, and he says, you've got some problems with actions, with what you're doing, and you've got questions about how you should act. He says, before I can even talk about that, you need to realize you have to think about the world radically differently. And Jesus is very radical, makes some radical claims then and now. And here's what Paul says. He says, the message of the cross, verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, it's the power of God. Uh, Verse 20, where's the wise man, the scholar, the philosopher of this age? God has made the wisdom of the world foolish. In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. In other words, the world is people, and this is true today as well as then, they're off chasing the answers to the big questions. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Uh, You know, how can I get the game on Saturday? You know, what, what does happiness look like? I mean, people are pursuing and coming up with answers, and they still are today, of what does the good life look like? How do I live a fulfilled life? How do I be happy? Uh, the self-help books at Barnes uh, and Noble just keep multiplying. And you'd think if somebody found the answer, there'd only be a couple books there. But the point is, the world has a lot of answers to those questions. But God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews want to see miraculous signs and the Greeks want wisdom, otherworldly wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's absolute nonsense to the Gentiles. And so he says, we look at the world radically differently. And until you adopt that way of looking at the world, you're not going to understand this. And so chapter two, he says, now when I came to you, I want you to remember, I wasn't eloquent. I didn't try to persuade you with the eloquence of my words. Because in those days, it didn't matter if what you said was true. The question was whether you could persuade somebody. And, well, that's still true, isn't it? And there are a lot of people that want power. They want followers. They want to persuade you that you should do things the way they want to do them or you should see things the way they want you to see them. Paul said, we didn't come with any eloquence, didn't come with any, you know, scholarly words or new scientific discoveries. We didn't come with any superior wisdom. He said, I just, all I really knew when I was with you is Jesus Christ and that he was crucified and raised for you. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. He said, my message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Your faith might rest on God's power, not on men's wisdom. And then finally, he goes into and he ends up, so he's taking this little detour to say, I'm gonna tell you about the divisions, but you're not gonna understand this until you understand that you have to pick which way you're gonna look at the world. And this is how he ends it, it's really beautiful. He said, the spirit of God searches all things, even the deep things of God. 
who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Holy Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but we have received the spirit who is from God. Remember, when he was writing to Ephesus, he told them in Ephesus 1.13, when you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of God, as a down payment, as a, the spirit will. Remember Jesus talking about, I'll send you the counselor, send you the comforter, I'll send you this Holy Spirit of God who will show you the way, he will correct you, he will encourage you, he will live inside you. He will make you into an image of Jesus Christ. He says, we didn't speak in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They just sound like nonsense, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. And then finally, but we have the mind of Christ. So I want to talk to you about this for just a second. I want to take a little detour. Uh, let's jump into the, the world of psychology for a minute. So Carl Jung was one of the pioneers of psychoanalysis, along with Sigmund Freud and the idea of looking into our minds and finding in there, in the deepest recesses of ourselves, of our minds. This is psychology. This is psychoanalysis. The motivations and the reasons that we do the things that we do healthy things, unhealthy things. One of the things that Carl Jung said, and if you ever listen to Jordan Peterson, who's been a popular psycho, a psychologist, he, he's really popularizing a lot of the ideas of Carl Jung, but one of the things that Jung taught was this, and I wanna jump off this for a second. You'll see this really is gonna tie in, trust me. Jung said that people don't have ideas that ideas have people. We didn't say that, but that's, that's what he taught. He taught the idea, you, sometimes you think you have ideas and you're committed to beliefs. He says, actually, it's the other way around. Beliefs have a hold of you. You don't possess ideas or beliefs about the world, they possess you. Now, I don't know if that's true across the board, but I think there's a kernel of truth in that. And experientially, you know that. There are certain things that I find that hard to believe, but there are things that I don't find that hard to believe. For example, think about when you fell in love and you fell in love and you courted your wife or you pursued your husband and you got to the point where you made a decision that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with them, you wanna share your life with them. This is a consuming, overriding idea. And it is an idea that consumes you. Do you remember, for those of you that have been in this situation, how cons all consuming that idea was? Men, this is the part where you go, yes, I do remember that. You just nod your head, this is what you're supposed to do. Okay, and so yes, you do. And it's in a sense, we talk about you are possessed by love. In fact, the ancient Greeks thought that little, you know, the little, uh, Cherubs, you know, those little flying babies with wings? I do not know who decided they should be little babies with wings. But anyway, these little servants of Eros used to hit you with the love arrow, and then you were kind of possessed. I don't mean possessed in the sense of some demon in there making your head spin around like in the movie The Exorcist. I don't mean possessed like the imperious curse in the Harry Potter shows. 
I'm talking about possessed in the sense that you are all consumed with an idea. Now, love is a positive thing that can consume you. There are negative things in our world, too. I mean, think about suicide bombers that are blowing people up in the name of an all-consuming idea. It's an idea of hatred. It's an idea of destruction. But it's an idea. It's not that you sit around one day and say, you know, I just thought up this good idea that, you know, I really think Allah wants me to blow people up. Or I really think that my ideology calls for blowing people up. Or I just hate this certain group of people so much that, you know, I I think uh, my race should be in charge of everything. And I'm going to go kill those people or blow them up. Their idea, people don't just casually possess those ideas. They are possessed by those ideas. And so I think Jung had something right there in the sense that we can be overcome and infused with ideas. It can be beautiful and brilliant. And as fallen humanity, it can be ugly and destructive as well. That's what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the spiritual man and the worldly man. The Bible is basically saying that you don't just decide, I think I'm going to follow Christ. And you know what? I think I'm just going to be a better person. I think I'm going to act differently. And I just kind of like these people. And you know, the music is great on Sundays. And their coffee, oh, it's free and it's really good. I just decided to be a Christian. That's not what Christianity looks like, is it? That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the kind of thing that can deal with persecution, that can be faithful to God through trials of life. It's an all-consuming. Here's how the Bible says it. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to deny your very self, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, my old man has been crucified with Christ. I have been raised to walk in newness of life. This isn't just an idea you have about how to live your life differently. This is an all-consuming spirit of God that I completely buy into. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, if you want to solve these problems, if you want to know how people live in the kingdom of God, the very first thing you have to do is you must be consumed by the spirit of God. And now you're thinking to yourself, wow, that is, that's like all in. That's what we call all in Christianity. So we call being sold out for Christ. We just put a lot of modern words around it, but we're saying the same thing Paul is. And that is, you can only really understand and we can only really live out following Jesus Christ when his spirit infuses us. What do I have to do for that to happen? The number one thing you have to do is relax, surrender. We don't like to hear that, do we? It's like, no, actually, Terry, I'd prefer a five-point plan. You know, do this, then do this, then do this. And that's what makes Christianity so easy. Remember Jesus said, my burden is light. I don't have a five-point plan. I don't have a ten-point with ten subheadings under it. I just need you to surrender and let me be in control. Let my spirit guide you. Well, that's harder than it sounds, isn't it? But that's essentially what Paul is talking about. He said, that's why I didn't come to you with all this wise and high-sounding language. That's why we didn't come to you with persuasive words to try to get you, to convince you, to change your mind. I just showed you who Jesus Christ was and how much he loved you. And I showed you the power of the Spirit. And when the Spirit takes root inside us, you realize my response to God is to surrender, is to lay down before him. That's what Paul's talking about. So, he says, once you understand that, we can attack these issues. 
So he comes back in chapter three. So at the, we, when he says we have the mind of Christ, he says, so back to this division thing you guys have going. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but only as worldly. Babies in Christ. The Greek word there is not little kids, it's not toddlers, it's like babies. I mean, wake up in the middle of the night and scream because you want to be fed. It's like, I could not address you as spiritual people, people who have surrendered, people who are thinking the way God thinks because the spirit is literally the mind of Christ within you. You were infants, you were babies in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. And indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. How do I know that? Since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? What he's saying is, is that you are still being captivated, captivated by that old way of thinking and you need to put it to death. You need to let it go. You need to surrender to Christ and say, how do we do things? He says, you know, you don't have to envy anybody anymore. Your inheritance is greater than you can imagine. You will live forever with me. What else do you need? Well, actually, I don't need anything else. I don't need to envy anyone. Quarreling. Why do you need to quarrel? Why do you need to be right all the time? Why do you need to be in power all the time? Why do you have to control everybody? Everything is yours. I mean, it's a radically different way of thinking. He says, but since you're doing that, aren't you acting like just worldly people? When one of you says, oh, I follow Paul, and the other one says, oh, really? Apollos is a better speaker, which was true. Are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants, merely servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos came along later and preached to you and watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. Wow, that is a powerful, powerful idea. He's talking about this idea of being worldly, fleshly. Some of your translations might say fleshly, but what it means is, I like the NIV, it says worldly, uh, your worldly ways. It's talking about the, the idea of just being mere men. And then it really has this idea about neither one is, is anything important. We are merely servants who are doing what God gave us to do. I wanna take a, another little detail here, and you might say, we don't do that. Like, we don't follow Paul and say, I only follow Paul, or oh, I only read the words of Jesus. Well, actually, there are some people who say that. But basically, we don't necessarily pick which New Testament author we're gonna follow. But we have our Christian celebrities, don't we? And I think this culture of Christian celebrity is, oh, well, I'm a devotee of this person. Oh, no, really? That guy's a way better preacher. Oh, really? That lady is way smarter than either one of them. You know, this idea of celebrity, whether it's in Christian music, it's in Christian preaching, it's in writing books, that starts to smack a little bit of this, is it can set us against one another. And we too can have, uh, or I just think the idea of Christian celebrity is almost an oxymoron in the Bible this idea of celebrity. And let me tell you what I mean, and we'll stop and take a few questions, but listen to what Jesus had to say. This ought to reset your ideas a little bit, and this is a different way of thinking. The world doesn't think this way. Jesus says this, suppose one of you had a servant. 
was plowing or looking after the sheep, would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, I bet you're tired. Come on now and sit down and eat. Wouldn't he say instead, prepare my dinner and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink. Well, they knew the answer to that. Well, of course, if you're the servant, you come in from the field and you're gonna take care of the master and then you can eat later. Would the master thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Of course not. I mean, these, answer, these questions are rhetorical questions. Like, well, of course not. He said, you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are merely servants. We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You may not know Jesus said that because there are not a lot of sermons preached on that one. Okay, that's not a really good feel-good message. But the point of it is, is Paul saying, Apollos and I are merely servants. Our God loves us enough to give his son for us. Don't misunderstand that God's gonna treat you like you don't matter. You matter supremely, but we are still servants. We're not celebrities. And we are here merely to do the bidding of our Lord and our God who died on a cross for us. And so you get this, when you get that mindset, all of a sudden it becomes really hard to be a celebrity. It becomes really hard to be jealous. And it becomes really hard, really hard to have quarrels about who's most important and who's, who's better than someone else. And so Paul's giving them a new way of thinking to help them solve the way of acting. So let me pause and what questions do we have? Um, were the people in the early church able to read uh, any of the gospels? Were the letters being passed around? Did they have any scripture? Or at that point, was it all just firsthand teaching from the apostles? Yeah, good question. So what in, let's just pick 53 AD. So in 53 AD, when this letter shows up in Corinth, what is there for them to read? Uh, not much, because you have an entire generation of people who have heard Jesus. Think about Jesus, uh, you can debate these dates, but this is close. Say Jesus is raised from the dead in 33 AD. Well, we're 20 years later. There are so many people that have been with Jesus and they've scattered all around the world to spread the good news. What did Jesus tell them to do? Go into all the nations as you go and teach them what? You know, make disciples, teach them to obey everything I said, baptize them. In other words, you've got all these people that say, well, I heard Jesus say this. And this is the story of what happened. You get this firsthand information. You probably have the book of James has been written at this time. Hard to know what other letters. Most scholars think none of the four gospels are probably written by 53. You just have people saying it. You have them telling it, so they're hearing it. They did make Xerox copies of these letters and spread them around. In fact, in Jesus, or excuse me, in Paul's letters, sometimes he'll say, read this letter in that church and you read the one I wrote to them. So it was very common to make copies of the letters and share it with other towns and other churches because they have the same questions. They have the same issues that are coming up. So pretty much oral at this stage, but by the time that generation of eyewitnesses is gone, the New Testament is written and it's widely circulating. The New Testament is God's inspired revelation to us. It was given by eyewitnesses, and then it was written down by the eyewitnesses and then passed on to the generations. So pretty much oral at this point. That's a great question. So this idea of uh, Paul is saying is, look, I want you to think about being a united family. Listen to this as he goes on. He says, I don't want you to deceive yourselves. Don't kid yourself. If any of you thinks you're wise by the standards of this age, 
you should become a fool. What's he talking to him about? He said, look, we just need to know who's the best preacher. We need to know who's right. Should we follow Paul? Should we follow Peter? Should we follow Jesus? Should we follow Apollos? He says, and we're gonna go all the way back to the beginning. Any of you that are in any of these factions, you need to become fools. In other words, you're still thinking like worldly people, that you wanna be on the right side or that your side is better than somebody else's side. Every one of them is teaching the same truth. We do that a little bit too because we are very attuned to style, particularly in the West. In the, and what I mean by that is, is we like to hear things, see things, experience things the way we want to experience them. In other words, uh, the medium is almost as important as the message for us. Now, give you, well, you know this is true because you can take something Here's my favorite example. I could give you a lot of others, but you may remember this because it's been a few years. So there's a TV show, a show called Dexter. And let me just tell you what this show is basically about. This show is about a homicidal maniac. This guy kills people. And you go, that's bad. Oh, no, he's the hero. He's the hero of this show. Really? How many, you know, homicidal maniacs are heroes of TV shows? Well, but here's the catch. He only kills people that deserve to be killed. Well, how do you know they deserve to be killed? Well, because I showed you how bad they were. And so then at the end, you find yourself, it's a popular TV show, you find yourself saying, yeah, way to go, Dexter. Way to channel that gift that you have for good purposes. You homicidal maniac, you. I mean, seriously, what has happened there? What has happened there is the medium has portrayed a story in a certain way to make you very sympathetic, makes you angry at the bad guy, makes you sympathetic for the anti-hero, for the homicidal maniac who's the good guy in this story, right? And so the point I'm trying to say is, is if I just told you that story and said, hey, we're thinking of a new show and we got this guy who's a murderer and he's gonna be the good guy, but he only murders people that are worse than him. And you'd say, yeah, yeah, get, get out of my office. You know, this is a dumb idea. This is not morally uplifting. This is not true. This is not how we think about life. This doesn't match our morals or anything. But when I show you that, that movie or that episode, what are we doing? We're like, way to go, Dexter, you know? My point is we are conditioned that the way we are told certain stories is as important as what is in the content of the story. If you don't believe me and you need one more piece of proof, here it is, commercials. Commercials are the ultimate proof in the Western world that you can be taught to believe anything if it's presented to you in the right way. Seriously. There's a reason that beer companies advertise during ball games, right? There's a reason that you can, be, you can be made to buy sneakers that have pumps on them, that have certain colors on them. Why? Because I'll be able to jump like Michael Jordan. Now, is that true? Well, unlikely. Maybe there's one or two of you out there that are that talented. No, that's not true, but you know what? I'm still, I'm still buying it for that reason, aren't I? The medium and the message, and that's why Paul's saying, we did not convince you with the medium. It's the message. And so what he's saying to them is, that's the way you're still thinking. 
And so you want to be on top by following the right preacher, by following the best or the most eloquent or the one that tickles your ears or you want to listen to the music that moves you. And Paul's saying that's not really consistent with the way God thinks about things. And so he wants them to think differently. He said, and this is the way he says, if you think you're wise by the way of this world, you need to become a fool. In other words, you need to just do the opposite of that. And so he talks in this passage, he says, so then no more boasting about men, no more divisions about this because everything is yours. You don't need to be superior to the Christian sitting next to you. You have everything, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or the present or the future, everything is yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. What's he saying? He said, you are in a family that owns everything. You can stop being stingy. I mean, literally, this is like you just got... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories about this, and they're great little movies and all. You know, you get poor kid who's never had anything. Next thing you know, gets adopted into a family that is so incredibly rich, and you, and you look at that, and everybody goes, oh, that would be so awesome. That's exactly what has happened to you. That's what Paul is saying. So no more of this trying to be better than the guy next to you or pick the right preacher. Everything is yours. Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. Peter is yours. You belong to Christ, Christ belonged to God. Your father owns everything. So why are you down here quibbling with each other about this? Does that make sense? Paul's saying, look, you can't solve this division problem until you think about things differently. If you thought everything in the future, everything was yours, you were gonna inherit that everything the king had, would you waste your time squabbling with each other? You wouldn't, and that's what Paul is saying to them, is we are a family and you have everything you need. And he goes on in chapter four and he says, now listen, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what's written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. In other words, he's saying, Apollos and I have no problem with each other. In fact, Apollos is in Ephesus. And at the end of this letter, Paul writes and he says, I asked Apollos to come back there, but he didn't want to. That's not good, is it? It's like, I'll see if I can convince him to come later. And Apollos is like, you've got to be kidding me. These people are a mess. You know, I don't, I don't want to go back there. But Paul and Apollos have no issue with each other. And yet the church is dividing over this idea of, well, I favor him and I favor him. He says, don't take pride in one person over another. For who makes you different from anyone else? This is a great passage. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is one of the things that happens in church. Let me just focus on church. So I don't know if you remember what it was like to go to church for the first time or go to Sunday school for the first time. I do, because I was raised a heathen, so I end up going to church with my wife who was not a heathen. And I remember getting in there and I remember thinking to myself, Number one, I sure hope they don't call on me because I know nothing about the Bible and it will become apparent very quickly. Secondly, when they said, okay, everybody turn to 1 Peter. I'm like, what? You know, and then you realize, oh no, it's kind of a loser move to go to the table of contents because then everybody else is gonna realize, 
This guy doesn't know the Bible. This guy doesn't even know where the New Testament is. That's true. I had no idea where any of this stuff was. And so it's very intimidating, isn't it? But I quickly began to realize that, you know what? And here's the way I say it. Nobody was born knowing this. Nobody was born knowing any of these things. And so why in the world would you be proud about it? Now, you may have worked hard to understand things, and that's great. I mean, you put some effort into it, but why in the world would I look down on somebody else as like, what, I was born with this, you weren't born with this? No, not, neither one of us. We all started in the same place. The only thing different between us is time. The only thing difference is I've just been Christian longer than you have, and I happen to know where First Peter is. And so that's what Paul is saying. He said, this is what's happening with you. You're taking pride one over another. He said, what makes you so different? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, if you received a gift and someone else didn't receive a gift, do you feel superior because of that? He said, that's the way the world thinks. That's not the way we think. And so he's really hammering them with this idea. And this is where the idea of Christian celebrity comes from too. This idea of I'm affiliated with this particular group or that particular person. And there's this feeling of being in some way superior. And I think Paul's convicting us about that. He goes on and he finishes up uh, with this. He says, I am not writing this to shame you. Paul is a pastor. He loves them. He's just trying to be straight with them. Real love is typically pretty straight with people. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. You have 10,000 guardians or teachers in Christ. You don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And I love this way that Paul does this. He said, look, I spent 18 months there with you. I poured my life into yours. But I've got to tell you straight, you guys are thinking like, worldly people, and you've got to change the way you think, and then these quarrels will go away. He says, and I'm not here just to reprimand you, which he's going to do a lot of reprimanding. He says, I love you. It's as though I'm your father in the gospel. I'm the one that brought the gospel to you. I suffered to bring the gospel to you. I care about you. And this is a good model for us to talk to, to other Christians in the world. If I don't love you, I shouldn't be correcting you. If I don't know enough about you to say, I care about you, then I don't really have any, any place to say, hey, by the way, you're doing this wrong. By the way, you need to be doing this differently. I don't know about you, but I've not seen a whole lot of love on social media. When's the last time you saw somebody get in an argument on social media and it was like, you know what? I care so deeply about you that I wanna tell you what an awful person you are. Yeah, no, not the medium for doing that, is it? It's the medium for expressing ideas in a public forum, but it's not the medium for Christians who really care about one another. And I think Paul's giving us that example here. He's saying, look, I love you. That's why I'm telling you these things, okay? So I wanna, talk, I wanna dive into this idea of divisions. You can read this while you're thinking about it. I wanna talk about denominations a little bit. I wanna talk about in there, he's saying, I don't want you divided up on I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. In our world, in the Protestant world, let's just stick to Protestant Christianity in the West. Uh, that's an easy way to, to narrow this down a little bit. We have a lot of denominations. We have a lot of affiliations. You know, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm a, in fact, these are really pretty good if you think about it. You, you could pick a church based on the most clever things on the sign if you wanted to. There are a lot of different denominations. 
in our world. In fact, I think we ought to do a series about that one of these days, or what are some of the distinctive beliefs of denominations? And so the question is, and that's what I'd like to discuss with you a little bit, is when Paul talks about being unified in thought and in mind, and not, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, is it okay for us to have these different denominations? I'm gonna break this into two parts. Uh, first part is, is it okay to have people that go to different churches? And then I wanna talk about the idea of denominations, which is a little more serious, right? Because when you typically ask people, they don't, anymore, you don't usually say, well, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Baptist, I'm a this, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a whatever. Usually it's, I go to this church, I go to that church. In my view, and I want you to think about this a little bit, there are three different categories of reasons that we might not worship together. We might not go to the same church. The first category of things are preferences. Preferences. And they're things like music style. Some people prefer hymns. Some people prefer uh, music that will make you go deaf within 12 months. I mean, people prefer different kind of music. People have preferences about liturgy. What is liturgy? Liturgy is, think about it this way, the order in which you do things. You probably think about liturgy in terms of high church. So like Presbyterians have a liturgy and uh, Episcopalians have a liturgy, meaning you go in, you know what's gonna happen. Actually, everybody has a liturgy. Let me tell you the most popular liturgy in the, in the United States in Christianity right now. The most popular liturgy is this. Two songs, announcements, two more songs, pick up the offering, sermon, prayer. That's a liturgy. It's low church, it's not high church, but that's a liturgy. Everybody has a little process, right, that you go through. Well, some people prefer a more formal process, a more liturgical service. Some people, a lot of young people, really like what are called neo-liturgical services, meaning you're gonna take certain elements that are very fixed and you're gonna integrate them into your worship, but your music might still be a band and not a choir. And so you have a lot of preferences. And my view on this is that you may go to different churches over preference. You don't have to be mad. Don't have to say you're not as good a Christian as I am because I like this kind of music and you like that kind of music. We have a lot of different churches for a reason. And some of them do a liturgy the way that you find is more conducive to what you want to do. I'll give you a great example of this. One of the choices that Laura and I chose when we came to Crossings, to this church, we were coming from a Presbyterian church. And so we decided for various reasons that we won't get into here, it's time to go somewhere else. And so what we did was we went to different churches for like a month at a time. You've got to actually see what this church is. But our criteria wasn't so much a matter of preference, it was where are we needed? Well, it took me a long time to find somewhere I was needed. It was a few years. But anyway, but bottom line, we wanted to know where can we serve. That was our preference, is a place that had opportunities for us that we felt like God's kingdom could use us there. So people have a lot of different preferences, and I think there's nothing wrong with attending a different, I prefer the term congregation than church, but attending a different congregation or a different church because this music is just better for me. That music is difficult for me. It hurts my ears. But whatever it may be, I think you may uh, 
do this over preferences. It's not something to be proud of. It's not something to be us versus them. It's just different Christians worshiping in different liturgies and different music, for example. The second is issues of conviction. Issues of conviction are things like we are really serious about the end times. And I know that that may not be a big deal to you. It's a big deal to certain people. Women's role in the liturgy of the church, in ministry, that is an issue of conviction. Uh, do we baptize infants or do we only baptize adults? Uh, do we baptize people as membership in the church? Do we baptize people because it's a sign of belief? All of these are convictional issues. Now, on a convictional issue, there is the idea of right and wrong. On a, a preference issue, it's not right or wrong. I mean, you sing a hymn, sing it fast, sing it slow. Is one right and one wrong? No, but I do have a preference. That's fine. Convictional issues, you typically, they typically are things the Bible talks about, and there can be a right or a wrong. But here's something that's really important for us to learn. There's a big difference between being wrong and being evil. There's a difference between being wrong and being evil. You can be wrong and not be evil. I realize if you've spent any time on social media, you're like, seriously? I don't think so. I think if you disagree with me, you must be evil. I mean, that is the way our world works, but that's not true, is it? There are people who are good-hearted, and they might be wrong. In fact, I am sure that I hold certain understandings of the Scripture that will, in time, God will show me that, you know what, you, you misunderstood that. You were wrong about that. I'm sure that's true, but I doubt he'll say to me, and by the way, that makes you an evil person. Not the same thing, is it? Matters of conviction are things where there might be right or wrong, but there's not an evil intent. And so matters of conviction are usually certain doctrinal things. I, it's my view that people may attend different congregations for that reason. And there are times when you should attend a different congregation. I'm not talking about a shake the dust off your feet. You guys are, are terrible Christians or bad people. No, we disagree over a matter of conviction. And you may be wrong, I may be wrong, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm going to worship over here because I prefer to, to not see babies baptized, or I prefer to have babies baptized. And I may be right, I may be wrong, but it's a matter of conviction. Does this make sense? And I think that's a good reason to have different congregations. The third issue are essential items. There are certain things that are essential for Christians to believe. There are certain behaviors that the Bible teaches are essential to our faith. I believe you must separate over those things. Some things I think you may. I mean, if, if you prefer hymns to something else, then by all means, worship with this group of people. Be friends with that group of people. Serve together in the community, your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are issues of conviction where I just read the Bible differently on this issue, but you know what? This is not an essential issue. And you know what? I think I'll worship here, you worship there. You do this a little differently than we do, and I love you, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are certain things that are essential. And what are those things? Well, there's a whole series out there called what... Uh, Things Christians Must Believe, I forgot. Anyway, it's, it's a series that you can get on our website uh, that talks about some of those essential things, but let me put it this way. I define the essential things by what it appears to me that Jesus and Paul and James and Peter and John, 
the writers of the New Testament, what does the New Testament appear to think are the essential things? I mean, if you think about it and you read the scriptures, this is why we need to be in God's word. Basically, God occasionally says, this is not okay to have a different, this is not a matter of conviction where you might have a different reading or understanding. There are some things that are essential to believe. I'll give you a great example. The Apostle Paul writes very harshly to uh, certain groups of people called Judaizers. And what they were teaching people is, you can't be a Christian and you can't follow Christ until you completely become a Jew and follow 613 commandments. That's what they were saying. They're saying you've got to do all of that right and then Jesus can be your savior. Oh, Paul went ballistic over this. He's like, you're messing with people's salvation. You're teaching them that they're gonna earn their salvation by following the law. That, that is completely untrue. And not only is it untrue, you are getting in the way of people actually being saved. Jesus, very upset uh, at certain legalistic people, meaning your merit comes and you are better than other people if you follow the law more closely. Should you follow the law? Yes, you should. But the kingdom is for everyone. Do not keep people from coming to Jesus Christ. That was a big deal to Jesus. You have the, all the talk about false teachers in uh, John. You have antichrists. He says there are antichrists in the churches. In other words, you do have certain essential issues, and they seem to be around the idea of salvation and the idea of causing people to sin, telling people they are okay with God when they are not okay with God. And so there are certain, a handful of things that seem to be essential. My view is you must separate in that situation. To me, that is the one time that we must, because that's what the writers of the New Testament did. They separated themselves from that. So, our biggest problem, though, is making uh, items of conviction into items that are essential. And so I think we need to really think about that a little bit. So let's talk about denominations then. Given that that's my view, then you would expect me to say this. I believe there are certain times when it's okay to have different denominations but not very many. I think we probably are getting this wrong to some extent in the sense that we've let a lot of matters of conviction cause us to get into tribes. So the way I understand a denomination, as opposed to just churches, in fact, I'm a big fan of the community church movement. And if you notice, you'll see a lot of churches that are affiliated with a denomination, but they don't have that name on there. Why? Because we really don't wanna be affiliated with a tribe in the sense of an us and them. And I applaud that. I think that there's some good things that have really come from that. Denominations are inherently tribal because denominations are defined by what you believe, but most of the time, honestly, it's what I don't believe. And it sets up an us and them. And in the history of humanity, we're getting outside of Christianity now, tribes are not all that great. Tribes always lead to us and them, and it always leads in some sense the dehumanization of them. Whether that's a racial them who aren't quite human, it's an ethnic them that they're not quite as good as we are, whether it's a nationalistic them, we are 
Americans, they're not. I mean, whatever it is, is we tend, tribes tend to breed a dehumanization and they always lead to conflict. Now, I'm not telling you that the Baptists and Methodists are, you know, fighting each other in the streets. Although, anybody remember Northern Ireland? Anybody remember uh, England in the time of the Catholics and the Protestants? I mean, none of us would say that that's Christ-like behavior, but that's what happens when denominationalism turns into tribalism. And so I do think that's a very unhealthy thing. The times when that, I think, is, is allowable is the idea of disassociating oneself from something that really departs from the essential of the faith. And that's sometimes you just have to walk away from people. I just don't think that happens very often, and I think most of our denominations have to be over matters of conviction. So I do like the community church movement in the sense that this is a congregation and this is how we, this is the preferences that we have. That's one of the reasons this church has three different worship styles. Is it A, because we can't make up our mind, or B, because we just like to take away some hurdles from people. And that's a good thing. If your church doesn't, that's okay too, because there are other churches that do the preferential things a little bit differently. And that's kind of something that the Apostle Paul would say, that's fine, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. In Corinth, they didn't all meet in one building, they met in different house churches. It was probably geographic. Now, you probably went to the church that was closest to you. Remember the whole parish model in the Catholic church and then Protestant churches used to have neighborhood churches? I think that was a healthy thing because you really didn't want to break up that church over convictional things. We learned to live together. We learned to get along with each other. The only time you saw that happening was if somebody was doing something that was so disunifying, that was so wrong, that it violated the gospel. And by the way, you're gonna see one of those things in the next lesson, because the Apostle Paul found one of those things in Corinth. But you're gonna see almost everything else that's happening it's not that way. They're doing so many things wrong, it isn't funny, but he doesn't say, you guys need to split. You know, one of you needs to be the church of Paul and one of you needs to be the church of Apollos. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says, if you think the way the Spirit does, you're gonna be unified. Does unified mean that we agree? No. Unity does not mean conformity. The, you're gonna find out that the Christians in Corinth didn't agree on all the convictional issues, but he still called for them to be unified. He called for them to be together. And that's the same call that you and I have today. It's the call to unity with those who accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our matters of conviction and our matters of preference, while we may be right, we may be wrong, they should not divide us in our common following Jesus Christ. The only things I find in the New Testament that can do that are where we are so far outside the bounds of what is true that we can no longer maintain fellowship. And that just doesn't happen very often at all. Make sense? So I'd like to change the way we think. When you look at that, you see groups and tribes, and it would, I think we need to just look past that and see people who are trying as best they understand it to follow Jesus Christ and surrender to him. You will find brothers and sisters in Christ in buildings with all kinds of stuff on them, You'll find them with all kinds of different skin colors, all different kinds of nationalities, all different kinds of languages. That is the essence of the church. That's what makes the church so different. That's what makes this family so very different. Well, speaking of families, the next question is a thorny one. 
And so this was just a warm up because this wasn't that controversial. This one is, when should you kick people out of church? And if so, who, and we will vote next week. No, I'm just kidding about that. You don't get to write in who you wanna kick out of church. But apparently there are some things and there are certain principles to decide when must we separate from someone. And so Paul's gonna go into that question next, having just come out of this idea of unity. So now he's gonna say, when should you be unified over everything but the most essential elements of the faith? When can you not be unified? And he's gonna give us an example of that in our next lesson. So I'll see you next week and we'll kick this guy out of church. <laughs>